welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, hey, hey. What's up, everybody? Guess what? I'm back. I'm picking up where I left off. So this is the Q&A from the Knock On Nation Part 2. I won't be able to go quite as long as I did yesterday just because of time today, but I'm going to pick right up where I left off and jump into the next questions, and we're just going to buzz through these and keep it going. So uh, first question here is from J.B. Buckner saying... Um, I've been watching a lot of the videos and listening to the podcast, trying to figure out where I'm going to start this archery adventure. Is it a big enough deal to go ahead and spend the extra money to buy a mid-range bow and get a cable roller guard set up versus just a standard cable guard? I want to get a mid-range bow to get started so I can get the main concept of what I need to learn until I'm knowledgeable enough to spend more money on a flagship bow. That's a really good decision to make. Um, And honestly, you know, the roller guards are great, um, but obviously we've shot for many, many years without them. And I would really think that you'd be better off with a good set of arrows and also... um, a quality set of accessories for your bow before jumping all in, getting this super high-end bow, and then not being able to accessorize it with real quality accessories. Um, there's a lot of a lot of accessories out there that are a little bit cheaper in price, but the quality of them and the ability to micro adjust them the ability to lock them down and have them go into the spot where you need them to go versus right back into the spot where you had snugged them down the first time Um, all that is really critical and it really affects your accuracy and it can make you um, either a great archer or a mediocre archer pretty fast And that's why each year I try to take some of not just the mid-range bows, but also some of the lower um, priced bows and give you a review and shoot them and show you that they can be just as accurate. Um, The Hoyt Charger is a perfect example of that. You know, it's, it comes in kind of at the lower end of their price range, but it's a bow that for years and years when I shot the Alpha Max, uh, I loved that bow and I loved it how it was with the cable guard and, and everything. So are there a few more precautions you might have to take? Yes, but again, being able to buy a good quality arrow rest, a quality release, and being able to have arrows that have good straightness and uh, weight tolerances are going to be probably more important for you than getting something that let's say has a magnesium riser versus an aluminum riser so to speak so I think you'll you're on the right track and if you focus on that and then even you know spend a little extra money finding the right person to give you some some good one-on-one time or paying for that one-on-one time at your local range uh, will put you further ahead anyway. 
Next question here is from Park Bean 36 uh, saying bow is tuned and center shot perfect. Bullet hole with the 350 spine uh, Carbon Express Maxima Red, but I'm shooting 300 spine East and Axis match grade, which give me consistent left tears. Could it be spine issues? Do I need a 260 spine? Um, so, yeah, there could be a couple things going on here. One, I need to make sure you're comparing uh, apples to apples. Because sometimes people buy a certain arrow uh, with a pre-fletch. Uh, for example, you know, maybe your Carbon Express has a pre-fletch, which um, I'm trying to trying to stalk through your your Instagram right now and look at that. So um, to see if there is a difference in your fletching configuration, because that can certainly uh, change the results as well because certain veins may have better clearance than other veins um, a lot of times or some veins may be giving you facial pressure versus some may not um, normally when it comes to spine and how that arrow um, is affected by the spine um, normally that has uh, more up and down um effects like for example if that arrow was um <clears throat> was too weak all of a sudden like you're saying most likely you're going to get a high tear uh, versus if it's too stiff you're going to get a low tear um, just looking back here through some of your um posts um i'm looking at probably an older picture um but you were shooting a caliper release um, some of the, that tear variance could easily come from um, how you're anchoring or your facial pressure. Uh, it'd be nice anytime you guys are asking questions, try to always get a current uh, photo of you shooting on your Instagram, uh, especially a broadside uh, picture, just so that we can be able to answer some of these questions as I see them. But uh, a lot of times the lefts and rights are going to be more affected by clearance or facial pressure. So keep that in mind and maybe take a look at what the difference is between the two and see if maybe your eastern arrows have a slightly different fletching config configuration or fletching height and see if maybe you're getting contact either on your face um, or going through the bow. Uh, let's see, next question here is from Wapiti Fit. Uh, thoughts on the change in the hunting industry over the last decade, a decade and a half. Geez, that's so vague. Um, well, I think change is good. Um, I think the things that stand out most to me is that the envelope's finally being pushed on being willing to share education and I think that's kind of a, a double-edged uh, sword because I think it gives a lot of people the ability to have a platform very easily to educate. But there's also a lot of people out there that are regurgitating, regurgitating information and not getting the information uh, correct. So, you know, I, it's one of those things where people want to be able to, uh, they want to be able to have the exposure 
especially on the social media side, but um, a lot of that information is pretty shallow in what they truly know. I think a lot of you out there, the more you watch someone, the more you realize uh, who's kind of just resharing information versus who's got uh, information that continues to grow and, and help other people grow. That's the one thing that I think is awesome about the industry. Obviously, the equipment has made a lot of progression over the last several years. I think the equipment's gotten better and better, and now I think we're to the point where from a cam efficiency point of view, a lot of the bows are starting to, to find their maximum efficiency, and you know we're really kind of having to trade... Um, an apple for an orange in order to get a variation in how these bows actually feel or how they perform. I think for the most part we're kind of at a at a max out right now for performance, but I feel like if a company shortens a brace height, they can make a bow a little faster. Um, I feel like, you know, they might be able to do something to make the bow maybe a little bit smoother, but obviously that comes with a slight trade-off as well. I think they can make it a little more accurate, giving it a little bit more brace height, but then it takes away from the speed. But overall, we're at a pretty maximum efficiency with what we're doing with the current type of cam systems. Um, I think overall, there's a lot of people making good bows. I think the difference is going to be in the details um, coming down the road in the future. Who is able to take what they have and really maximize it to work for the people that they're putting those bows into. Um, I really feel like there's an opportunity now for people in even in the retail world to have access to more information to be better as a retailer as well if if they do dive into that. I know there's a lot of shops that kind of make it mandatory or pay their employees to to listen to some of the knock-on podcasts or listen to some of the educational videos as they come out and then they relay that same type of thing to their customer and overall i feel like the amount of people that i see in my feed that are shooting archery for the first time or you know they're shooting this year for the first time ever and looking at their technique and thinking how far ahead they are versus where most people would have been one year in, uh, you know, even five years ago, is just night and day different. I think that there's a very awesome movement right now with uh, people really focusing on being uh, respectful as hunters and trying to deliver um, a good message to the masses. I think there's some really awesome things happening where people like Joe Rogan, for example, are able to bring a new light to what hunters do and what hunting is. I think, you know, there's people like that that are bringing a new light to the hunting world and letting the mass media or the mainstream people be able to have a slightly different view on it and be more open-minded and I also think that there's a very awesome thing happening right now where people want to know where their food came from and hunting is becoming 
um, more acceptable just from that realm alone. And for that, I feel like it's doing really, really good um, for the archery industry and the hunting industry, so to speak. So um, next question here is from Armin Dere. I don't know how you pronounce this one. Sometimes people combine a bunch of words together, but it's Armanderes underscore W uh, says, I've never pulled a bow before. Where to start with archery if I am right-handed, um, right-hand dominant, but left-eye dominant? Um, and I also shoot guns left-handed. So, yeah, this is a common question. Um, it's one that... You know, Sharon has kind of a stigmatism with her left eye, even though she's right eye dominant. So she does have to close her left eye when she shoots. Otherwise, if she opens her left eye, her left and right uh, impact really does change. And that's one thing that if you're brand new, you need to make that decision right away of, am I always going to block my dominant eye or am I just going to start to, you know, learn to shoot left-handed now you can certainly close that eye the better thing to do would be to to have some type of a blinder that you clip on your hat or something that actually blocks that left eye even though you have you know you can keep it open uh, I like keeping the eye open just so that the your other eye gathers more light uh, however if you do start to look past that blocker or if you're closing your eye one shot not and barely opening it the next shot it majorly changes impact so this is going to be a very very important thing for you to for you to make a decision on um, whether or not you're a hundred percent certain that you're going to cover that eye or always fully squint that eye shut or are you going to just go ahead and shoot left-handed the thing is a lot of left-handed bows that are used they do sell for less overall they're a little bit harder for people to get rid of so you might be able to find a left-handed bow used and give it a try and see how it goes uh, the other thing too is you know with our uh, release trainer that we have it'll allow you to kind of simulate that a little bit too by you know having the bow grip in your right hand the release in your left hand and kind of do some of that simulation on the shooting long before you actually have to pull back uh, and it'll help you get comfortable with what you're supposed to feel at full draw uh, there's a lot of other people that jumped in and from the knock on nation and helped you out so thanks for everybody who helped that guy out as well uh, let's see here uh, Chris Bullen saying elk hunting with a decoy success failures tips etc so um, yeah I had a very very successful I've had well we had three successful hunts using uh the decoys i was a big fan in these decoys that were selling on the knock on website right now as soon as i saw them i thought this is an awesome idea um i've had mine in my backpack ever since um that first week of season and we had our first success over the decoy um i think somewhere around like august 26th or 27th 
up in Alberta. Uh, I shot a bull, and then several days later, Andy shot a bull. Both of us popped that cow decoy up and had it for, you know, as we're calling for something for that bull to look at. Um, and last week in Montana, I called elk for a guy, and I had a bull coming really good. I had my decoy out, but unfortunately what I didn't realize, the bull ended up hanging up about 60 yards from uh, from the guy and would not come any closer. And part of the reason why is because I tried to fall off the back of this slope to try to draw the bull past him, and I did have my decoy, but the elk came and was looking intently trying to see another elk and could not see the elk. He could hear one, and he knew one was within 100 yards, but he wasn't willing to uh, to commit any further without actually seeing something. And it was because of the slope of that terrain. Had that hill slightly went up to where I could have exposed that decoy at 100 yards and let him see a cow, uh, it probably would have been um, a game changer. Uh, most of the time with decoys, regardless of whether it's elk or anything else, it tends to be uh, hit or miss a little bit. Obviously, when things are in the rut and when things are intent on responding to a call, you know, if they're responding to vocalization, then what they try to do first is pinpoint where the sound's coming from to get there. The next thing they're going to do is try to locate with sight so they're going to try to see you and then the next thing they're going to do is they're going to try to confirm and they're going to try to smell you by circling downwind uh, to be able to smell you before making that last commitment so keep keep those things in 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 mind you know they're gonna they're gonna want to pinpoint you they're gonna want to get a visual and then they're gonna want confirmation and your movement or your setup with your decoy is very um it's very important that you think about those three things as you're doing it because obviously if you set up in a place to start calling where he looks and he's going to see you but then the first thing they're going to be able to do is immediately circle downwind which is very common with whitetails um if my wind is ever blowing at um, a non-favorable direction and i see an animal you know, I'm thinking, okay, he's my wind. It, it'll be easy for that buck to get my wind, okay, or a bull. And if I call to him right now, the first thing they're going to do is stop. They're going to look up here, and then they're just going to, it's, they're going to know right away that I can easily detour myself 50 yards in a little uh, flank pattern and I'm going to have the wind of that for that confirmation. So in those situations what you may have to do is you know let them kind of do their thing and not not be identified yet not be known and you pull the flank around so that then when you call now they actually have to commit to coming in for a better visual um, or they have to fully commit to coming into the audible versus being able to scent check you first. Because if they can scent check you first, um, that's pretty much game over. Uh, you really don't want any part of that. Uh, the quality of the decoy certainly changes success. Um, I've messed around with pop-up decoys a lot, and honestly, when I'm by myself... 
I rarely end up using them because it ends up being a pain to try to flip them out and them not be blown around back and forth to where the movement looks fake and then trying to stake them down or losing the stake. A lot of that, you know, I just have problems. The The number one decoying thing I've ever had was turkeys once I bought the Dave Smith decoys. As soon as I bought a super high quality decoy, the success rate instantly changed. Then I made an investment and bought a really super high quality deer decoy. Um, and as soon as I did that, my amount of deer, whitetail deer interaction with my decoy immediately changed. Unfortunately, good decoys aren't, aren't that cheap. Um, the, the one that we're selling for the elk and the antelope work awesome. I really believe in them. I think, uh, I think you can have a lot of success with those. And, you know, if you need to move, there was three of us. There was myself, this guy that I met from Minnesota that I was calling for trying to get him his first bull. And I had my camera person with me, Caleb. So we actually got behind this decoy and moved in on this bull that had came to 60 yards and installed. And then he went back to his harem and he ended up bedding down. I spotted him um, through the pines bedded. We got behind that decoy, got in pretty close. He finally saw something. He turned and looked. I literally crouched right down to the ground staked that into the ground and the three of us got behind that decoy I started cow calling he came and he was working he was trying to get our wind but he knew that if he went too far to get our wind he was going to expose himself in a wide open area and this was a very big and mature um, bull so he was in the process of trying to make his play and figure that out meanwhile a spike just totally came in looked at the decoy came right to 30 yards um turned broadside sat there you know dripping at the mouth just looking right at the decoy and the hunter was you know having the decision of should i just shoot this spike or should i should i wait for the bull and i told him i said well personally you know i was whispering you know, there's a 350 inch bull behind that spike, 20 yards behind it. You know, the bull was less than 50 yards away. It just was behind a wall of, of pine needles. So he couldn't feed an arrow through there. Had he had a gun, it was game over. Um, but you know, the decoy worked really awesome and I'm, I'm a believer to him for sure. I think when it comes to, um, decoys, I think it works well on elk. I think it'll work. I think they'll work well on moose. I think they work great on antelope. Um, and I definitely know that um, having, like, I used to wear the be the decoy hat um, for mule deer. I feel like them just seeing a silhouette that isn't human definitely helps you out once you're pinpointed. So hopefully that helps you out. Um, let's see here. Bamf. 427 Z06 answering your question when a deer or elk is walking and you want to shoot and you want to shoot when appropriate which release do you prefer or recommend the silverback or knock to it your expertise on the subject would be helpful um, as we enter into Pennsylvania's deer season 
I have both releases. So I really feel like, and I, I've said this many times, I feel like people should shoot the release that allows them to make the highest quality shot. If you know that a trigger release gets the best of you, then taking away that ability, um, and that's something that I talked about in the last podcast, of how you know it took me years and years to to get to the point where I felt like I could shoot any release and have success. Now, me personally, if I get a wrist strap release right now, um, if I shoot that wrist strap release, it works fine for me for a few days, and then after that, I start to make some terrible shots. So, um, I just don't shoot a wrist a wrist release. Um, just because I don't like having any type of anticipation or any type of uh, mental things going through my mind when shooting an arrow. I want to just focus on the process of um, pulling through the trigger and getting that shot to break. I really feel like you can have the exact same shot execution with both releases. Um, if you really learn a silverback or if you really learn a hinge release, you can make them all fire uh, within a second of each other by how much you start to really learn the wall of your cam and the valley of your cam and how much you start to learn preload and how much pressure you're able to put on a trigger before you start that pull to get it to go off quick. Um, that's one of the things that I really like about that um, shot trainer that I have is because just having a release in your hand and making shots with that release um, th numbers of times, time and time and time again, you just your brain starts to understand how much pressure that release needs or how much pressure you should have on your fingers um, before you start that pull. That preload, what I refer to, is something that you learn from numbers and numbers and numbers and numbers of reps. It's not something that you can do it 20 times and think, okay, yeah, I know exactly how this release feels. Um, a lot of times when I grab a, a release from someone's hands, I'll grab it, cock it, I'll put my thumb on it, and I'll pull on it and try to see like how much tension that thing takes to fire. I'll do that a few times, and then I have a very good understanding for how much thumb pressure I can put on that release before I start my normal pull because some people shoot a release that's very heavy. Some people shoot one that's very light. I want my shot to virtually be the same exact shot but the only difference is how much preload my thumb can get on that barrel before I start my shot and that really factors in as well for being able to shoot animals that are that are walking or that are you know navigating fairly quickly um, or coming into a lane very fast you know I'm literally pulling back getting as much tension on that release as I feel like I possibly can before it's firing, getting my finger to that thing, and then as soon as I'm finishing that last little bit of pull, that shot's going off within a second or two versus being light on my pull and then getting my finger to the trigger and then having to pull through you know, the entire thing. So think of it like this. The more you shoot a release, the more you realize, okay, I can put my thumb on this release 
And with this amount of thumb pressure right now, or even if you're shooting a silverback, you pull against the wall and you, you check in against the wall and you, you know, your mind or your subconscious should know your muscle memory and your cam feel enough to think, okay, I'm at about 50% of what I need right now. When I let off the safety, I'm at 50% of what I'm going to need to continually pull before this release goes off. Or if you're bringing your thumb to the, to the knob and you got some thumb pressure on there, you think, okay, I've got thumb pressure there, but I'm only at about 50% of what it needs for this to fire. And so then you know you have to finish that extra 50% with your pulling motion. Now, if you really start to learn that release, you can start to know, okay, right now I'm at 75%. This isn't going to take that much for it to go. Or you might think, I'm at 90%. I could very well, as I'm letting off this safety, this thing could go off. Me, you know, if you're shooting a silverback, like I'm pulling very, you know, I'm, I'm at 90% of my pull right now. So when I let off, it might be ready to go right now, or it's going to go pretty quick once I start to commit to this shot. And the same is true for getting your thumb to the trigger. You know, if you really start to get some skin around that trigger, you're thinking, okay, this, this isn't going, but as soon as I start to think about my elbow coming back, it's going to. Learning that is a huge step and it really makes the difference on your ability to make shots in an instant when you need to and also your ability to make shots in windy conditions or foul weather conditions. Um, you know, having to, to learn to shoot a tension release in the wind, part of what makes people really good at that is them understanding the preload enough or the commitment in the shot enough to where they're 80% committed already to that. So once that wind stabilizes just a little bit and they decide, okay, this is my best window of opportunity to make my shot, they're letting off that safety, committing to that pull, and it's going off relatively fast versus sitting in the pocket for an extended period of time. Um, <clears throat> Next question here is from Ethan underscore Morrow saying whitetail Sitka setup throughout the season. Um, there's several good podcasts. I think they're back in like the 190s for the podcast, but there's several podcasts that are really good specifically for this that I'd recommend you listen to. One of them is with Dennis Zuck. Um, that podcast was really, really good, and he worked at Sika and really helped fine-tune some of those uh, processes and some of the systems, and he talks through those and does a freaking awesome job doing that. Um, there's also a podcast that I had done um, with uh, Chris Derrick, where he actually is one of the designers for them and he walks you through all that as well i can tell you that for me personally um i'm actually going to uh start out this very first part of the season in my um in my my subalpine stuff uh simply because i feel like 
I really like this pattern a lot for the early season, even though um, just based on the way um, Sitka works, they're not going to flat out come out and tell you that that pattern is is suitable for whitetails just because it's never been tested specifically for whitetails. But I can tell you, me personally, I... I'm 100% confident that it is a super valuable pattern for early season whitetails. And as long as there's no major weather coming in, uh, I'm going to be happy with that. Now, when it comes to getting a little bit cooler, then, you know, you can move through the different systems. I'll start first. Um, Always... When it comes, I talked about this on the last podcast, I'll always have a core lightweight for my very first layer. Then I'm going to have my hex um, next. Then over that, depending on how cold it would get, I'd have either a medium weight or a heavy weight uh, base layer over the top of that. Um, Then when it comes to what I would wear, I would probably start out um, in October with the Equinox system. Then I would probably move into the Fanatic Light system uh, more towards because it's very quiet, but um, the Fanatic Light does not have a wind barrier. So if you don't have those windy days to deal with, then that Fanatic Light is an awesome setup. If you deal with wind a lot, um, the Stratus is a very awesome setup. Um, it's super windproof, super quiet. Um, does really well in water as well um and it overall it's it's an awesome suit and then as you move into you know and again that's once you're dealing with some wind and some rain and some of that stuff but then once you get into the full-blown uh late season that uh new fanatic is the best thing there is out there um no question about it it's it's just awesome Um, so that's kind of where I'm at, but go back and listen to those podcasts. I think they're back in the one nineties, somewhere around in there, but, uh, awesome podcasts. And I do plan on having Dennis suck on again. Um, because when I first talked to him, he had formerly been at Sitka, but was currently at Yeti. And now he's actually, um, has left Yeti and he's back at Sitka now, um, in a really cool role so he's gonna be an awesome person to have a great podcast with um okay so rip city griller is saying would love some recipes you've tried out this season i'm a grill master at rip city grill and i'm always looking for more inspiration um would love to pick your brain about cooking wild game uh and about bow hunting so yeah i'm definitely going to get more um and i again i have to pick and choose my times of when i can do some of this stuff like i can't i can't be full-blown traeger mode while i'm also full-blown hunting mode and while i'm full-blown school and knock mode like there's seasons to what i do and uh the winter is training season obviously i you know i'm enjoying a lot of cooking too during that training season during the spring also training season a lot more cooking and then as we move into summer you know there'll be quite a few uh grilling things and i do plan on getting a little bit more depth in there i'm starting to 
really toy with the idea of doing um, kind of a a a, a basic uh, cookbook, so to speak, or you know, kind of my favorite wild game recipes. Um, things that I've learned on a grill, something like that, grilling 101 or, you know, triggering 101. I don't feel like I've never had any training. Um, I'm definitely not an expert. I just know what makes my food taste better. Uh, the Traeger definitely helps with that or, you know, makes most of that happen. But the other thing too, is if you are starting to cook wild game, one of the most important things is you know, not overcooking it just because wild game is so lean, uh, it will dry out faster and it definitely changes everything about it once you do dry it out. And that's one of the great things about the Traegers. It's just so hard to, to overcook it. You can, but your window of screw up is much larger, uh, with the Traeger. Um, Next question, Steve33B, um, how do I get over punching the trigger? Honestly, the best thing that you can do is get into some of the Knock on Archery YouTube videos. Um, if you really want to do it, the best thing is to not try to necessarily go to what you're you're doing now and have this miracle cure the better thing to do is to wipe your slate clean and say okay i want to learn um how to shoot properly and i'm going to start back at the beginning um because i feel like that clean slate will help people get there easier than trying to take all of their previous stuff and fix it to where now it works Changing your releases, 100% for sure, really help. Um, there's no doubt about it that your mind builds association with certain things. And if you're shooting a wrist strap release, your index finger knows exactly when it's getting on that trigger and it's going to get after that trigger you know, so changing up to where you have like a thumb activated release or especially the tension activated release just changes the process enough to where you're thinking about something new and your mind is being occupied with a process versus being occupied with um, you thinking about or worrying about your fear of punching that trigger. Um, I feel like if you go back and you look at the Archery 101 or Archery 102 um, videos that I've done or also look at um, the School of Knock series and walk through that um, and then maybe when you start that School of Knock series don't even focus on trying to do that on a target where you're aiming at the spot but just follow the exact same school but follow it on a blank bale that's up close to where you can focus on all the aspects of this archery without focusing on where your arrows are landing or making that perfect shot on a bullseye when you start to take all that away and you really start to focus on that process and go through this mental checklist of you know I'm going to, right now, I'm just going to focus on, for example, week one, I'm just going to focus on shooting four quality arrows, shoot them at a blank bale, shoot them close, 
if you go into that with the release you know maybe you watch a video a few times on how to properly shoot that release you know maybe you're new to a silverback and all you're doing is trying to operate that release properly and just telling telling yourself each and every shot i'm just going to make a quality shot right now i'm going to make a good shot and you know if you pull back and you feel some anxiety like i talked about in the last podcast make sure if you're listening to this podcast you also go back and listen to the last podcast i went in depth about kind of things that you should think about mentally trying to overcome uh target panic but just positive affirmation to yourself and telling yourself okay i'm a little bit nervous right now all that's fine. I'm going to let off the safety and I'm just going to pull slow. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to let off the safety and I'm going to pull slow, pull slow, pull slow. Oh, it went off. Okay, that was good. Everything was good. Just keep confirming to yourself that what you're doing is good and that it's okay to be nervous. The main thing is you're making progress by making a surprise shot. And if you focus on that, and put all those things together and wipe that slate clean, I think you have a very good opportunity uh, to make forward progress with your target panic. Um, S. Davis 0788. Is it wor- worth switching from left-handed to right-handed shooting to match your dominant eye? Hey, we already answered that. So you got yours answered sooner than later. Um so thanks for the question. Uh, the wrench head. So you're asking, why can't we get any color accessory kits for our Hoyts? Is it true they discontinued them? I had heard that, but I'm not sure. Um, honestly, when stuff comes out that I like, I normally get a lot of it. That has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with... Um, shoes it has to do with archery accessories it has to do with releases etc when someone comes out with something that I like and it's something I want to use I get a lot of it so I'm actually still using some of my color accessory kits that I got um, years ago Uh, tie underscore EDG uh, most memorable hunt of all time. Gosh, I get asked that quite often and I can never really answer it. Um, because honestly, they, they continually change. Um, this next week I'm, I'm going hunting with Jocko and it's going to be his first, first ever bow hunt. I'm really pumped. Um, I'm really hoping it's a memorable experience, but, Honestly, there's just so many. I had an awesome hunt um, a year ago on 9-11 with, with my buddy Andy. It was an elk hunt. Um, the My hunt with with Harry for his first ever bow hunt when he shot his alligator, um, something I always think about, always remember. Uh, Sharon getting her first whitetail after I think it was somewhere around 700 hours that she had put in total. Uh, to finally get her first whitetail uh, was just super memorable. Um, but I don't know. It seems like I remember uh, other people's a, a little bit more uh, than I remember mine. Um, there's just, it seems like when I go on a hunt, I remember a lot of those hunts when we're there. Um, and obviously they're all awesome, but 
they all just have different meaning. So it's, it's really hard to say. Same goes for what my favorite thing to hunt is. It just seems like that continually changes. Uh, Adam Kilgore's asking, how about Sitka using the subalpine in some of their whitetail gear? Um, bucks transitioning into their fall patterns and what excuse you're going to use to get out of my birthday food fest. <laughs> well, Adam. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely feel like the subalpine is an awesome choice for the earlier season when there's still a lot of foliage. Um, I do like that pattern a lot and I feel like the apex set is super quiet and certainly can help people get through that that hotter time of the year um, especially if you're limited on the amount of sets that you can buy if you're a big game hunter but also a whitetail hunter and your budget's limited i would probably favor you get into the you know get you some big game clothes with the subalpine and then maybe instead of getting that early season whitetail set kind of leapfrogging into that equinox or the fanatic light so that you can transition from like that apex set or like a kelvin you know like a kelvin light hoodie or a kelvin jacket you can leapfrog right over into that and the other thing too is keep in mind like if you have the big game mountain jacket which is windproof that's a great layer to put underneath that um fanatic light jacket which doesn't have wind protection um, naturally but is super quiet and then also has that elevated two pattern for whitetails but you can essentially use your big game layering or the things that you've used for big game for either that colder day or the wind protection you can use those same things and layer underneath that fanatic light set and kind of get to the same thing. The main thing is just understanding the system and how the layering system is supposed to work. And once you do that, you're going to be um, going into an awesome, an awesome hunt with the right clothes. Uh, in regards to bucks transitioning into their fall patterns, I talked about this a little bit yesterday. I feel like if I have something just dead to rights from a pattern point of view, then I'll focus on some of this early uh, out of the gate hunting. Otherwise, I might elect to save some of my prime spots to for a, a more prime opportunity to strike um, and instead choose to maybe go to some areas where I don't have much history I don't know much about it's kind of a wild card maybe there's a cool buck there but I feel like the bucks on the neighbor's property more so than on the property that I'm at you know for example like we talked yesterday people that are hunting smaller parcels of, of ground and have um, people around them with that food you know those are all great spots because those deer are in a transition mode and sometimes during these fall patterns what will happen is the deer just go from being super visible in the bean fields or on the clovers and then all of a sudden they kind of vanish for this first part or mid part of October and a lot of times when the acorns start hitting the ground they start hitting the timber to get that 
um, those fresh acorns hitting the ground and the deer just aren't as visible. So sometimes getting into those long shot spots have definitely produced, but you should certainly try to monitor the green during that pre-rut phase. A lot of stuff likes to, to ramp up the feed on the green uh, prior to the hunt. Good, good buddy of mine, Craig, um, shot an awesome, awesome deer uh, a week and a half into season last year um, hunting on clover. And uh, everything was correct the moon was coming up uh before the sun was coming down had a great little wind um you know had kept a spot pretty quiet all the conditions were right moved in made a strike and everything uh worked out really really well so hopefully you can use that dude and depending on when your birthday is this year it changes every year doesn't it no it doesn't uh let me know i'll be I'll be around when I'm around, but as you know, I am rarely stagnant. So uh, hopefully I can come pig out at the house. Uh, Next question here and the last question for this podcast anyway um, is from Jared Red B saying how to plan and prepare for your first big game hunt out west, Uh, how to find the right outfitter, is a private land hunt worth the extra money? Um, honestly, this question really comes to time um, and what your time is worth and how much you're actually able to move around. You know, back when I first started um, working for an archery company, I had limited amount of um, I had limited amount of extra income. I had limited amount of vacation time. And quite honestly, I just couldn't afford to go on private land hunts or I couldn't afford to go on outfitter outfitter hunts. Um, so I would just go and, you know, I went out and knocked on doors and certainly my success or my opportunity overall was less just because, you know, you're the one having to put in the homework. There's not someone there that's done homework for you. And even if you're in a good spot, like for example, uh, my buddy Caleb's uh, out right now in Idaho doing a, a public land hunt, he's in a great spot, but so are a ton of other people. They're all in there. And, you know, there's, there, it's not like there's communication down at the campground saying, hey guys, we're going to go into this basin. You guys go over to that basin. You guys go over to that basin. It's more like, it's a it's a community a community spot right it's just like going to a beach uh everybody wants to get in the water but there's limited amount of sand most people are pretty close to each other and you deal with that um honestly i feel like i've got to the point now where i go to a lot of the same spots just because i know what to expect um i do hunt with uh outfitters in both of the places that I go to in Canada simply because you have to have an outfitter to get a tag Um, but I also feel like it's valuable to utilize those people that are essentially you're paying them to do some of that recon and some of that homework 
um, you're paying them to to put in some of that time and effort into making the most out of your hunt. I feel like if people are able to afford that, I think that it's beneficial and I think that you'll have more success and you're also able to enjoy it more just because you're able to get there. You're able to get a set up faster. Maybe your camp's already set up. It's already going. You just have to move in, spend some time shooting your bow. And then from there, it's, you know, how much do you want to get out and hunt? A lot of times I've gone out on public land hunts where I have limited vacation time. I get out there and I have an awesome hunt, but I just figure out what the heck these things are doing by the last day and then I got to go. And then the next year I go back, I try to pick up on what I learned the year before, but realize they've made a slight adjustment yet again because maybe this water hole is now dry or maybe this neighbor now has food planted. So you have to make those adjustments. Um, a good example of this is a buddy of mine, um, and you can you can look him up. But it's his. He started bow hunting or started shooting a bow about one year ago. Uh, his Instagram account is Josh Hall Surfboards. He's a he's a board shaper from out in California, out in San Diego, and started shooting a bow a year ago practiced quite a bit um came out to the total archery challenge shot with us uh got some practice in and then he actually booked a hunt and um you know got got a few lessons at a local shop um and then booked a hunt and went out and had just an awesome hunt and he went out and did a first ever uh elk hunt literally one year after learning to shoot archery he i don't even know where he got that i think he used like some type of a booking service like epic hunts or something like that and he booked at south peak guide service in new mexico and he went out and shot a freaking awesome elk on his first ever hunt and he and he was able to have a guide kind of show him the ropes and to be honest with you i feel like if your time is limited or if your time is valuable and if you have the ability to to somewhat go guided or semi-guided your first time, I feel like you will learn enough to where then you're able to start going out on your own. And I really feel like me personally, I've hunted with enough guides. I've learned from guides. I've learned from other outfitters and how they call and how they move and how they communicate um, that I feel like I would be a better hunter now because I've actually learned from some people that had more experience than me. Uh, but if you're not at that position where you know, you're not really uh, able to, to book on private land or go with an outfitter, I get it. I totally understand it. Um, just it's more rewarding, I think, to go out and do everything on your own. But also I know that if I'm going to go and I'm going to, to just walk in and hunt public land, I also know that my expectation of maybe size of the animal or expectation of interactions or opportunities is going to be lower 
And I also know going in that there's much more likelihood that I'm going to run into someone. And, you know, and I have that expectation. So I don't, I don't let it uh, get me down when that happens. Um, and I feel like although it's, it's awesome and it's fun and it's certainly an adventure and it's cool to go out and, you know, be out there completely on your own. And it's an awesome story. And I feel like everybody should do it. I also feel like if people have the ability to hunt with an outfitter or hunt on private ground, um, I feel like that's got um, equal amount of value. And it's something that for me, um, you know, I try to go into trips for four or five days and come back home and then go for go for another trip. So with me bouncing around, I feel like it helps my opportunity and I've gone, I continue to go with people where I've had success or I feel like the homework, um, and the setup is prepared so that when I go there, I, I just put, you know, I put the stock in my hands. I put the shot in my hands and I, you know, and I'm the one that's in control of how much pressure I'm putting on that place. And I go from there and, I feel like it's got awesome value too and certainly something that I feel like now that I'm 43 years old uh, I'm glad I paid my dues and got to the point where I'm able to do that um, but there certainly was a point where I was living in a $19 Walmart tent popped up in the bed of my truck um, you know with a pretty much like a a carpeted piece of plywood that I screwed down in the back bed of my truck and I'd pop my little tent up in there and and go and you know cook off a little Coleman propane cooker off the off the side of my truck and and that's what I did and I you know I had some great hunts like that and I certainly had success um, and it was super rewarding but I've also really got to the point where I like to be able to do more uh and have more success rather than you know getting out there spending a lot more time out there to to have minimal success so i think it's a, a very valuable balance i think it's something everyone should experience in both ways and i hope it's someone everyone or something that everyone does get to experience in both ways so hope you guys like this podcast i'm gonna shut this one down but believe me i'm gonna pick up and keep going for you guys while i'm here and practicing up for my next adventure so knock on everybody be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com